with me to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. I see that we have the uh, people are afraid of the spitting zone here. I promise I won't do a lot. So it's like the back of the bus. You guys, this is like seriously how, how I grew up going to school and everybody's like back of the bus. I don't want to be too close to the teachers at the front. Awesome. We have not grown up one iota from there. Anyway. We are in Acts 20, and, and we've been working through Acts. Let me just remind you of where we've come before we dive in this morning. In Acts, in the very beginning, Jesus is looking at his disciples. It's just this group, this band of people that have just watched him be crucified by, by, by Jews whom he was trying to reach out to in Jerusalem. And they're terrified the same thing's going to happen to them. And so they're huddled in this upper room. And suddenly Jesus shows up and goes, guys, I am not only alive. But I have triumphed over sin and death, proving once and for all that I truly am the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer of mankind. And now I'm going to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you. But you've got a job. You are now going to be my representatives. You're going to carry on the work that I have begun over these last three years of ministry. And particularly what I did on the cross. You're going to become the people who carry that good news to the rest of the world. So I want you to wait here in Jerusalem, for the Holy Spirit to come upon you because you certainly can't do this by yourself. So wait. But once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then, then you will be my ambassadors, my witnesses. The word in Greek is marteros, from which we get the word martyrs. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and then in the surrounding region of Judea, a little further up into Samaria towards those untouchables, and then finally to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and and they begin to come out of hiding and declare powerfully that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And they do it in such a way that people are hearing it in their own language. And, And this movement begins in Jerusalem. But of course, they get pushed back. And they even get so much pushback, in fact, that there's a guy who literally becomes a martyr in the in every sense of the word. Stephen is killed for his faith and his, un, his unwilling, or I'm sorry, his willingness to declare the truth in the face of extreme opposition. And there's a guy there presiding over that, a guy named Paul, who's watching all of this and, and basically being the representative of the Pharisees saying, this is good, we need to shut this down. Fast forward. Once Paul has kind of tried to crack down in Jerusalem, he says, I need to take this on the road because there, there, as the persecution happened, it was, we've described it as a kid taking a dandelion and blowing on that dandelion, which is the early church. And they were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and even beyond. And literally it was the persecution that perpetuated the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Sometimes it really takes discomfort to get us to do what God is calling us to do. <clears throat> so we find Paul saying, man, I, I, I hear that there are other people spreading the gospel in other towns. I need to go crack down on that as well. And he begins to take that show on the road to Damascus. And as he's on his way, Jesus confronts him on the road and goes, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is transformed. I'm I'm compressing the timeline, but Saul is transformed from the greatest opponent of the gospel message into the greatest proponent that we know. He became a man who was zealous about spreading the gospel 
And he felt specifically called to spread the gospel to those individuals who had not yet heard it. The people that were beyond the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria area. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth. That's what he was about. And as we've been looking over the last several weeks, he begins to go on these missionary journeys. You know, Paul, imagine this for a second. If you get in your heart, I want to begin to share the gospel with everyone so that everybody will have an opportunity to hear the good news. Well, okay, let's go ahead. and I want to share the gospel with everyone in Costa Mesa. How long do you think that would take to share the gospel with everyone here in our little city? Well, I'll tell you, it would probably take a really long time because we've got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I've got two more weeks of Olympics to watch before I can really focus on this. And then it's still summer at that point, and I've got the kids, and they demand a lot of energy and a lot of attention, so I really can't get to that yet. I'll get to that you know, once school starts again, and so on and so forth. And we find ourselves pushing it back and punting it back. Not for Paul. He said, nothing gets in the way. This is going to be my focus. But even that, think of in in Costa Mesa, it would take us probably a lifetime to be able to share with everybody. Now, Paul is thinking in, in terms of continents. He's thinking in terms of entire countries, nations, Asia, Greece, Rome, And then I want to move beyond that to Spain. Paul had a huge plan. But how can one person or even a couple of people hope to accomplish that? There's no way. If he just approached it, I'm going to talk to one person at a time. So what Paul did is what I like to call cultural acupuncture. Now, see, for those of you who are familiar with acupuncture, here's how it works. If you have nerve pain somewhere, let's just take my arm, for instance. If I had nerve pain in my arm and I went into an acupuncturist, the person would say, well, I can't, you know, treat every single nerve. But here's what I will do. We know that those nerves connect to a central nerve center. And I'm going I know exactly where where those nerve centers are. And if I take this little needle and stick it into that nerve center, we have found that it will actually influence all of the nerves around it. Well, in the same way, Paul approached ministry as a cultural acupuncturist. He recognized, I cannot go to every single little village, every single little town, and spend even one night sharing and hope to cover half of the territory I feel God has called me to cover. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than trying to kind of like piecemeal hit everywhere, I'm going to find these cultural nerve centers, places like Rome, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and I'm going to go there. And rather than spending a couple of days, I'm going to go, I'm going to go there and I'm going to spend weeks, months, even in some instances, years, investing in the people there, sharing the gospel with them, doing everything I can to make sure that they get it and they get it well. So we're going to be in in Acts chapter 20, but let me just read a couple of verses from Acts chapter 19 that we looked at last week, just to kind of help us as we lead into this. This is from verse 8. When Paul showed up in Ephesus, this is how he approached just about every town that he went to. Paul entered the synagogue. This is the place of worship of the Jews that were living there in Ephesus. And he spoke boldly for about three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, why would he start in the synagogue? 
Because remember, he was intentional about sharing the gospel with everybody, not just with Gentiles, with Jews as well. And in fact, if you're going to go somewhere and try to influence a place, it's easiest to start with the lowest hanging fruit. So let's start with the people that speak my language, that, that are awaiting their Messiah. Let's start with the people who have been studying the very same scriptures that I've been studying. And I can say the Messiah you've been waiting so long is here. And he did that for three months. But as inevitably happened, there was, there was a group of Jews who would absolutely grab hold of that gospel message and get excited. And there was a group of Jews that would push back vehemently against it. And inevitably that happened. And here in Ephesus that happened as well. So once that happened, verse 9, some of them, once some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and they publicly even maligned the way they were pushing back against it in such a way as to make trouble for Paul. And so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He basically went to a, a guy who had a lecture hall that he used for education there. He said, can I rent this place every day at a certain time? What time does what, what time works for you? Oh, you mean during that kind of siesta time between 11 and 4? It's not really being used. Can I use it then? And every day he would gather with whomever would come and he would share the gospel. And, and look at what verse 10 says. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Two plus years he invests into the city of Ephesus, this cultural nerve center. And in so doing, he has the ability to allow the gospel message to spread like yeast spreads through a batch of dough. Allows the gospel to permeate all of that Asian region. And by the way, just an interesting side note, when you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, those letters to the seven churches of Smyrna or whatever, those seven churches are in Asia. They were influenced by Paul's time in Ephesus. So Paul practiced cultural acupuncture. He approached it as, I will invest here knowing that it will have far-reaching ramifications other places. Um, but here's what Paul recognized. He recognized that it wasn't enough simply to sow seed, right? It wasn't enough to simply sow and go and move on to the next place because if he did that, if he tried to share the gospel and then move on, then it would probably have about the same effect as when I tried to reseed my backyard and fix the lawn. You see, I, I, you guys know I have young boys and I am also a young boy. And so we like to be rough on lawns. And so if you were to go in my backyard at any point, you'd probably say, wow, your, your lawn has the mange. Because we got, you got some lush grass and then you've got these areas, these dry patches that have just been worked and run over, and we've put swimming pools down on top of and forgotten to move for two months. And they're like, oh, look, dead patch. And so I decided one time, because Kathy and I want to be able to have people in our home, we're like, well, let's try to get our backyard rehabilitated. So I did what seemed natural. I need seed to grow new grass. And I went and I bought a big bucket of seed at, at Home Depot or the, at the Home Despot. And I'm, I'm walking around my backyard, kind of just scattering the seed everywhere. But I'm, in particular, in those dry patches, I'm putting a couple extra handfuls of seed. And I'm moving on. And once I kind of scraped the bottom of the bucket and it was empty, I went back in the house. Because I'd done my job. I'd seeded the backyard. And yeah, I know I could have done other things like, I don't know, water. 
maybe raked up the leaves so that the seeds could get to the ground. And once they got to the ground, that they could get some sunlight on them. Maybe spent a little bit of time with a rake to break up the dry, crusty ground so that the seeds could actually take root. And maybe, just maybe, protect the ground for a little while while the the seeds germinate and then sprout and get a little stronger. Keep my kids from tromping all over it. But I didn't do any of that stuff. Because it's the seed's job to grow. It's not my job to grow it. I just have to put it out there. And there's even a parable about the sower and the seed. And all he did was do this, so that's all I'm going to do. It worked about as well as you think, right? And then I thought I had done the right thing. I thought that was the right approach, quite honestly, until I went over to my neighbor's house. And Chris is one of these guys who actually does things the right way. And so he also had a dry patch of lawn. And when I went over there, he had taken that patch and he'd, he'd raked up all of the pine needles that had fallen on it. And then he'd kind of scratch the surface to get the topsoil to actually be receptive to these seeds. Then he'd watered it. Then he'd thrown his seed down, probably about a quarter of the amount that I used in any particular area. Then he put some fertilizer over the top of it. Then he watered it again. And then he did something ridiculous. He put a string around it so that my kids and I would not tramp all over it so that it would actually have a chance to germinate and grow. And once those little seedlings started to sprout, then to actually take root and get robust enough to be able to withstand getting tromped on. And you want to guess whose lawn looks better now? It's not even a question. Because he took the time to actually care for and nurture those seeds that were being planted. Paul was an evangelist. That was his goal, was to spread the gospel. But he did not approach it with the sow-and-go mentality where I just cast the seed and hope for the best. And when I think of evangelism, I tend to think in that term. Sow-and-go. Get out to, to Huntington Beach on Main Street and see how many people I can share the gospel with. Get people to one of these big tent revivals, maybe over at Angel Stadium. See how many people we can pack in there and share the gospel with them with some really powerful worship music and see how many people we can get to pray the prayer. Because that's our goal, right? Is to get them to pray the prayer? Actually, no. Because God, Jesus never called people. He never called his disciples to make converts. And that's what we do when we're simply focused on getting people to pray a prayer. That's making converts. He called us to make disciples. He said, the last thing he said to his disciples before he left is, listen, guys, I'm going back to the Father and all authority has been given to me. So therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Don't worry, I'm not going to let you do this on your own. I will be with you always. And he was through the Holy Spirit. The point I'm trying to get at is so and go does not work because we are not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. And making a disciple is very different from making a convert. You can make a convert in a moment. It takes months, even years in some instances, to make a disciple. It requires time. It requires life-on-life interaction. It requires being willing to kind of step into the muckiness of life. And actually allowing other people to see the junk in our own life and saying, hey, we're real. We don't have it all together. We're Christ followers because we're the first to say, I am desperately in need of a Savior. And Paul understood this. He wasn't about so and go. And in fact, I should mention that there have been studies of, of these big tent revivals, these 
these harvest gatherings and things like that. And they have found that when left to simply throwing seed out and hoping that there will be a response, you can get thousands of people that will pray a prayer in a night. But when they've done follow-up a year later and said, who's actually living differently from that decision they made a year ago? They have found that less than 10%, in fact, the number's closer to 6% of people who made a commitment at one of these crusades is living any differently a year later. And by the way, I should mention that the people who are running the crusades are well aware of this. And so they are making very tangible, very intentional steps to make sure that they're not just casting seed and moving on. Obviously, they can't possibly hope to wrap their arms around thousands of people. And so what they've done is guys like Greg Laurie have partnered with other churches in the area saying, would you be available to both pray for this crusade, but then also be available to grab hold of a few people that live near you that come to these crusades? so that you can actually walk with them, journey with them, disciple them. Because we're not into making converts. We're into making disciples. We have been called to one part, sowing. We need other people who are called to actually caring for and nurturing that seed. Paul was called to be an evangelist. But he recognized very early on that he couldn't just sow and go. And so he spent time in places like Ephesus. Upwards of three years But God had already called him out of a a church in Antioch and said, I don't want you just to be a pastor shepherd. I actually want you to be an evangelist. Other people I will call to actually tend to the field once you've sown those seeds. And so once Paul had spent enough time in an area that he was able to disciple mature Christ followers, he would then move on to other places. Can we throw up that map for just a moment? Here's the map of Paul's third missionary journey. You'll notice here on the right up at the top, it begins in Antioch. I know it's really small, and I apologize. It gives you an idea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Way down there at the bottom on the right is Jerusalem. It began at the top, and he kind of works through Asia, and he spent three years in Ephesus. That's right there in the middle of the picture. From there, he went up to Philippi, another cultural nerve center. He went down to Corinth, a huge nerve center. He went over to Athens, a giant kind of philosophical nerve center. And then after that, he goes, you know what? It's time to go back to Jerusalem. I have some things I need to do there. I feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting me to go there. But here's the thing. Once Paul moved on, he never just forgot about the places that he planted churches. He never just turned his back on it and expected it to grow. He spent a lot of time actually praying for them and trying to communicate with them. Given the parameters of it, it was a day and age where you didn't have instant ability to, to email people or phone calls. It wasn't even rapid transit. So he did his best to communicate with these little churches that he planted. Most of the letters that we have in the New Testament are written by Paul or others, to these churches that they had planted. They're they're, they're letters of encouragement. They're letters of, of teaching and direction as a father to a child because he cared for them. And in this instance, Paul really wanted to connect with the elders in Ephesus. This is a lot of, of kind of lead into the passage we're going to look at today. Paul cared about these leaders, and he cared about the church that was under their care. He would have loved to go to Ephesus, but he felt God was saying, go to Jerusalem. And if he went to Ephesus, he probably would have stayed there a lot longer than he had time to do. And so instead, what he does is he calls for the elders, the leaders, the shepherds that have been placed in trust and care over that little church in Ephesus. And now we're going to read through what he says to them, because I think that this is a beautiful picture 
of the heart of somebody who understands what it takes to disciple people, understands what it takes to plant seeds and grow them into fruition. We're not going to read all of chapter 20. We're only going to read a few sections. We're going to begin in verse 17 of chapter 20. Paul finds himself in Miletus, which is this, this port town where he's going to catch a ship that will ultimately take him back to Jerusalem. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, this cultural nerve center that he'd spent three years investing in. He sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, the word elder there is synonymous with pastor. It's synonymous with the word shepherd. It's basically the people who are entrusted with the care of this church. And when they had arrived, he said to them, guys, you know how I have lived this whole time I was with you. From the first day I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents who wanted to shut me down. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would have been helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly as well as house to house. I've done done large gatherings and I've done very intimate gatherings sharing with you. I have declared both to Jews and to Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And so now, compelled by the Spirit of God, I am going to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city that the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. All I know is it's not going to be easy this path I'm on. However, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, let me stop there for just a moment and let you know that Paul didn't have a death wish. He was not looking to die. In fact, when when the Jews sought to shut him down. Some places they were plotting to to stone him. Other places they actually went so far as to stone him, thinking they left him dead. Paul didn't get back up there and kind of thumb his nose in their face and stick around. He was smart enough to go, okay, obviously this door is closed and I'm going to move on. He wasn't looking to die, but here's the thing about Paul. He was more concerned with obeying God than he was staying alive. He was more concerned with being submissive and submitted to his Lord and doing what he had been called to do than he was with self-preservation. That was his heart. At the end of the day, it is more important to do God's will than it is for me to be comfortable or safe or even alive. I love that heartbeat. Verse 25. He says, now I know that none of you amongst whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He truly believed that this was his last interaction with them. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, what on earth does that mean, Paul? You are not responsible or or, or you are not... um, You are innocent of their blood because you haven't hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. What does that mean? What he's doing is he likens himself to a watchman on the wall, just like God had called Ezekiel, a prophet in the Old Testament, to be a watchman over his people. You see, in in, in the old times, 
when you had rival nation states that were trying to conquer you, you had to constantly be on guard for people who would try to sneak in and destroy you while you were sleeping. And so you would set watchmen who would watch on the wall and they had one job and one job only. They have a trumpet next to them and they watch to see if there's any danger. And if any danger shows up, their job is to blow that trumpet. And that trumpet lets the people know danger. Wake up. Prepare yourself. That's it. It's not their job to protect the people by fighting for them. It's not their job to force the people to do something. Their job is simply to blow that trumpet and warn them. What the people do with that warning is upon them. And if the, if the watchman blows the trumpet and the people respond, great. And if they ignore it, that's on them, not on the watchman. But if the watchman shirks his duties, he forgets his trumpet at home, he falls asleep on the job, and people break into the city, every single life is ultimately their blood is upon his head because it was his job to warn the people. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read this to you very quickly. I'm just going to read three verses from Ezekiel chapter 33. In fact, can we throw them up here? It says this, Son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel here, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you don't speak out to dissuade them from their ways. Well, that person, that wicked person will die for their sin but I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, then they'll die for their sin. Though for you, I'm sorry, but you yourself will be saved. And this is what Paul is saying to this group of elders. Guys, God made me a watchman for his people. He made me a watchman with my trumpet beside me to go out and proclaim far and wide to anybody who would listen that you need to repent, that you are shackled by sin and that you cannot save yourself. Only God can do that. And I I have been called, Paul says, to share the gospel and I have done that now. I have not shirked my responsibility and I have invested my life into this area so I can say with utter confidence that I have fulfilled my duty as a watchman. But then he looks at these gathered elders and he says, guys, you have a responsibility now because I'm going to Jerusalem and I don't know what lays ahead of me, but I knew it's not going to be comfortable and I don't think I'm going to see you again. So now you be watchmen of this church. You be shepherds who care for it. Let's go ahead and read what he actually says here. Verse 28. Keep watch first over yourselves and then all of the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Did you notice what he just said there? It wasn't just keep watch over the church. He starts by saying keep watch over yourselves because who is the enemy going to attack first? Often the enemy will attack those who have drifted away that have no protection. But in the church, he comes after the leadership. Because if he can strike us down, if he can cause us to stumble, then like um, for those who have been attracted to an individual rather than to God, when that, like a moth to a light, when that light goes out, the moths scatter. My hope, guys, is that you are not here for any particular person. Not for Lee, not for myself, not for Pete, not for Chris, not for anybody but Jesus Christ. That's the reason we're here. Not for a person. 
or at least not for personality. And so Paul says, listen, guys, keep watch first over yourselves because the enemy would love to take you down. And then secondly, but just as importantly, keep watch over the church for which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Whose church is it? It's not Paul's church. Even though he planted it, it's not these elders' church. Even though they were the overseers and pastors, it is God's church, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a great reminder for us. This isn't Lee's church or Eric's church. This is God's church. We are simply the caretakers, the overseers, the shepherds of it, and that's a huge deal. And I pray that that would be true here. Verse 29. I know that after I leave, he's speaking to these elders again. I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day and with tears because I cared about you. Be on your guard, just as I have been a watchman for you, now you be watchman over this church and over yourself. Verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I want you to notice that I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. I haven't coveted anything. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Remember that Paul was a tent maker. He did that specifically so that when he went into an area where there were people that he was trying to share the gospel with, he would not be perceived as a snake oil salesman peddling the gospel for his own profit. He knew, just as we know, how damaging it can be when it seems that all the church is interested in or all a preacher is interested in is getting into your wallet. And so Paul said, I made every effort never to allow that to happen. Now, Paul, to be true, was supported by people back home who were sending him money. But whenever he went into a new place, he's like, I'm making it an effort not to ask you for anything so that you will never question what my motives were. So that you will never think that the only reason I'm telling you the gospel is because I want your money or because I want your I want power over you or I want prestige. And Paul says, listen, guys, I've set an example for you as the shepherds of the flock. Do not make this about your own benefit, about your own income, about your own power and influence. In everything I did, this is verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I love this picture that we get in in 1 Peter chapter 5. You don't need to turn there. But Peter basically said exactly the same thing to the elders that he was writing to. Peter said, To the elders amongst you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, not trying to get money from it, not not coveting what you can get. But eager to serve, 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock by the way we live our lives and the way we interact with people and the things that we value and the things that we focus on and the things that we speak about. And holy moly, am I convicting myself as I say these things? But we lead by example. And Paul looks at these elders that he had spent three years investing into and says, I have set an example for you. And now you go and set an example there because just as I have been a watchman over this church, you are watchmen over this church. It's God's church that Jesus Christ bought with his blood on the cross. And he loves them. And he loves you. Now go and be a shepherd. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and he prayed, which is usually a very good idea. And they all wept and they embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship and he got on a ship and he sailed to Jerusalem. And sure enough, what lay in his future was prison and hardship and trials and a very different iteration of his ministry and god used that time and we will see that in the coming weeks how god used that time but that's a conversation for a different day today i just want us to recognize a couple of things i want to pull out of this number one paul recognized that there was absolutely no feasible way for him to reach everyone one-on-one And so what he chose to do is cultural acupuncture. He went to the places of influence and he invested himself there and he allowed that message to spread from there as people came into those areas, as people were influenced by those areas. Because for Paul, he had been called by God to be a change agent. And there are people even today who have taken the same approach to cultural, spiritual change. I can think of a couple of pastors, a guy named Erwin McManus, another guy named Rob Bell, who left large, thriving churches because they recognized that one of the most influential nerve centers of our culture in the world is just up the 405 freeway in Hollywood. They recognize the way that night and day people open their homes to portals of information and portals of entertainment that we watch, that we expose ourselves to. And they recognized just how bankrupt so much of that stuff that we allowed into our homes were. And they said, I want to influence the next generations. And this seems to be one of the most powerful vehicles in our nation right now and in our world. And so they moved their families to Hollywood and they began to influence there. They tried to write scripts. They tried to get shows started and so forth. They tried to influence the influencers in Hollywood. Other people have followed suit. And some of them have even recognized you don't even need to move to Hollywood to influence it. I think of um, uh, the the brothers that made like all of the the Facing the Giants and uh, War Room was the last one that they made. What are their names? The The Kendrick brothers. Yes, thank you. Who are writing movies, producing movies that are getting theatrical releases and are getting following because they're done well. They're not cheesy and lame and embarrassing. Right. And we're seeing more and more how Hollywood is being recognizing that when you actually put a Christ centered redemptive message there, people would like to watch that. 
That's just one example of people who have, have grabbed a hold of that. And in fact, now with social media and, and, and the ability to have YouTube and stuff, there are even younger people who are having a tremendous impact on their generation without the huge production cost in a way that is redemptive. They're, they're cutting through kind of the negative vibe that's out there and simply bringing a message of hope and allowing the gospel to keep the main thing the main thing. I think of another guy named Francis Chan. Wrote a book that some of you have probably heard about called Crazy Love. Was a pastor at a church up in Simi Valley. Things were good. He could have been very, very comfortable staying at his church. But God broke his heart for the least and the lost. And he said, I cannot in good conscience stay here comfortable when there are other people out there who are dying having never heard the gospel. And I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they will never step foot into a church. So if they won't come to the church, then the church is going to go to them. And he moved his family into the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And he began to live out the gospel amongst neighbors that on the surface wanted nothing to do with the gospel. But as they got to know him and they got to recognize the God whom he served, he introduced them to Jesus. And that's what he's doing even today. He's loving on his neighbors intentionally in a cultural nerve center of our nation. And through books and through teaching, he's asked to speak at a lot of conferences. He's actually influencing a next generation of people who will move beyond their comfort zone to these places that desperately need to hear the gospel. So that's just an example of some people who are practicing cultural acupuncture. And as I look at this room, and particularly some of our younger guys in here, God may have designed you, like Paul, to be a cultural acupuncturist. He may have called you to step out of the regular. I mean, a lot of times when people think, I want to do ministry, I want to represent God, they think, I've got to be a pastor speaking in a church on Sunday. Or I've got to be a youth pastor. I've got to be, you know, whatever. But a lot of the people who are making the greatest impact for the kingdom of God are doing so outside of the traditional sense of a church. And they're doing it simply by loving the people that God has put them into contact with. And if some of you in this room feel like God has called you to take that step of courageous faith and be a cultural acupuncturist, then I just want to pray over you right now if you bow your heads. God, you created us. You know exactly what you created us for. You've called us to be not only your sons and daughters, but to be your witnesses of hope and reconciliation in a world that's hurting and broken. And there are some of us in this, here this morning that are hearing this message that you have been preparing them for something that is far greater than them, for a vision that is scary on the surface because they look at that and they look at themselves and they go, there's no way I can do this. And by themselves, they're right. But with your spirit's enablement, you can and you will use them to do what you planned for your namesake, not for theirs. And I pray that you would give them the courage. I pray that in this time that they find themselves in this community, that we would have the wisdom to know how to equip them to do what you're calling them to do. I pray that you would surround them with men and women who would pour into and invest in them to support them so that when the day comes and they take that courageous step to go, they will do so in the full confidence that you are with them. Amen.
Second thing, as, as you kind of heard in that prayer, as a church, our purpose is to be a church that equips, a church that disciples. If there's one thing I hope that for, for this church, it is that we would become better at making disciples, not just converts, disciples of Jesus Christ. And guys, I've got to tell you that we haven't doing, been doing that as well as we can and we should. And I, I would ask for your prayers over the pastors and over the elders of this church because in the next week we're going to be having some conversations about what that looks like. Particularly on Saturday, we're going to gather together and begin to cast a vision for how we can be a church that makes disciples. And in fact, I want you to know, <clears throat> so first off, you can be praying for us. But I want you to know that it's, this is not a church led by Lee and myself and Chris and Michelle. We can't do this by ourselves. Even in a small church like this, we can't possibly know all of you intimately. We can't be walking with you as intimately as we would like. And so there are a group of people that help shepherd and care for and pray for this church. And that's our elders. And our elders have wives that are just as integral to this whole process because I have found in my own life, my wife is extremely discerning. And half the time I think, I think this is what God is saying. She's saying, hold on, hold on a second, slow down. Here's what I'm hearing. It's like, you're right. And so I would ask that our, past, or our elders and their wives stand up for just a moment <clears throat> so that we can recognize you. You're here. Quick. All right, we've got Tom and his wife, Terry Phipps, right here. We've got Byron, that's his street name. He's hard. And his wife, Diane. We've got Pete back here. And his wife, Nina. We've got Gene in the back and his wife, Michelle, you know, is across the street loving on our kids. Uh, who is not here is John. No oh, there's Rich Rapoli back there. His wife, Joyce, is, I believe, with the grandkids today. And then who's not here is John Nelson and his wife, Liz. These are the men and women that we have asked to take this posture of being a shepherd of this church, to step up and say, I care for these people and I will, I will pray for them. I will open my life to them. I will walk with people. I will invest myself into them, not for my own gain, but because I love this church and because I love my God and I want to invest myself here. And so I just want to pray over them. And if you'd extend a hand towards any of these that are standing right now, God, I thank you that we don't have to try to do this by ourselves. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters who have accepted the call to help carry this weight. And I ask that you would protect us in this coming week, in the coming months and years, as we seek to submit this church to you and answer the call to be your representatives and to love the people you've entrusted to our care for your name's sake, and for all of our strength. Would you protect us because the enemy would love to take us down, would love to stumble us. Would you protect us and would you give us the eyes to see the attacks of the enemy so that we can blow the trumpet, so that we can fulfill our call to be watchmen on the walls. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. One last thing. Oh, and actually, I'd, I'd ask my elders, if you guys could, could move around the room as we go into a time of response here, because I want you to know that we, we're going to be responding to God here. We're going to give some space 
to just respond to what God has been stirring up in your hearts. And I want them to be available to pray for you. They, and it's not just on Sundays. They're available to pray any time of the week, as are Lee and myself and Chris and Michelle and, and even Marge, although with a lot more energy with her. But I've got to say this, because I would be remiss. And hold on just one second, Pete, because this, this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. Paul could say with utter confidence that no one's blood is on my head because I have fulfilled the call that God has set on my heart to be a witness and to say everything God has put on my heart. And I cannot in good conscience say that because I know that there are some here this morning that I have not shared the gospel with. And I know that there are some in here this morning that if they were asked, do you know where you will go if you were to die today? They could not, and you couldn't in, in full confidence say, yes, I know. I will, be, I will spend eternity with God. And so to you, I simply want to give a brief articulation of what the gospel is. All I can do is blow the trumpet. It's up to you to respond. You were created to spend eternity in relationship with God. You were created for an intimate relationship with the creator and sustainer of this world. We call him God or Father or Yahweh. And he loves you. And at the same time, our humanity has has corrupted our ability to be in relationship with him because we tend to run the other way. We tend to rebel. And we have sullied ourselves with the things of this world. I'm the first to say, I'm not a Christ follower because I got it all together. I am a Christ follower because I am desperately in need of a Savior. And we try, our human tendency is to try to clean ourselves off, to kind of wipe the muck off, and all we end up doing is spreading it. And the frustrating part of our humanity is that sin makes us incompatible with our holy God because God is light and our sin is darkness. And darkness and light cannot coexist, not because it would solely light, but because light destroys darkness. And God loves us too much to simply allow us to be destroyed by our sin. And yet at the same time, we can't clean ourselves up. And this is the dilemma that mankind has found itself in from the very moment that Adam and Eve bit into that fruit and sin entered their life. But here's the good news. What we are incapable of doing on our own, God has done for us through that cross. Through his son, Jesus Christ, God, who took on human flesh, walked walked amongst us, experienced life in this broken world, and ultimately died in our place, taking our sins or the penalty of our sins upon himself so that we could live. He died in our place so that we could take hold of the life that God made us for. A life of intimate relationship with him. And a life of getting to be his representatives to a world who so desperately need to see the light. And all you need to do to take hold of that life that he has made you for is accept the gift of grace that Jesus bought for you on the cross. It's not something you can earn. It's not a gift if you've earned it. All you do with a gift is accept it and say thank you. And so this morning, I'd ask that you bow your heads one more time. 
And if you are at this point where you are tired of trying to do it by your own strength, tired of trying to clean yourself up, tired of trying to get your life in order, and you've reached that point where you just say, I'm done. God, why don't you take over? Because quite honestly, I'm not doing a very good job of steering. If you find yourself at this point where you're like, I'm ready to give my heart to Jesus, then I ask that you would just pray this prayer. There's nothing magical about it. It's just an acceptance of that gift, and it goes something like this. Jesus, thank you for dying for me so that I can live with God. Thank you for doing for me what I could never do for myself. And I accept your grace. I don't understand it. I don't know why you would. But thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me a second chance. Would you come into my life? Because I don't want you just to be my Savior. I actually want you to be my Lord. And to have your way with me. I give my life to you. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that, I don't want to be like one of those guys who scatters seed and then walks in the house and hopes that it grows. We as a church want to do a good job of walking with you. So two things I ask of you if you prayed that this morning. One is write it down in your connection card. Just let, let me know so that I can follow up with you this week, so that I can be praying for you. Secondly, those elders who are now going to stand up and start moving,